You know that three-legged chair that often comes up when discussing energy? The one where one leg is the environmental aspects and the other is the economics? But what about the third leg, the social one? The one which we engineers and economists tend to be slightly annoyed and perhaps also a bit puzzled by. Well, in this interview, at least my perspective on the social aspects has been broadened significantly. Our very competent guests will make me and hopefully you much smarter on the social aspects without it in the Tentrans project. That's short for Tendering Sustainable Energy Transitions. The project delves into an interesting South African procurement program for renewable energy, which beyond the megawatt hours also requires concrete social benefits for the surrounding communities. And with six gigawatts capacity installed or under construction, that's actually a whole lot of environmental and economic and not least social impact. Welcome to Energy Policy Costs, research-based dialogues on the many sides of energy policy. From Technical University of Denmark's Sustainability Division, I'm your host, Daniel Sneum. Today we are joined by research associate Holle. Actually, I'm not sure I got <laughs> your last name right. Vlokas? Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, It's Holle Vlokas. From Center for Complex Systems in Transition at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. And Holle is also a consultant, but I'm sure she will explain more about that later on. Today we're going to cover the research on community engagement within energy projects, renewable energy projects specifically. And this takes our podcast in an interesting turn since it introduces the human factor in relation to green transition. So um, welcome, Holla, and, and perhaps you can tell a bit about what led you in, in this direction, um, starting from whatever beginning you prefer. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't ever plan to work in energy, I think. At least I didn't grow up having that plan. Um, yeah, I studied in Germany and um, got an internship in South Africa when I was 20, 21. And through that, got introduced to the South African context and then eventually ended up living in South Africa. And now it's 13 odd years later and I'm still there and I am working on energy only. The The journey to get me into that situation or, or position is, um, yeah, I started around 2007, 2008, where I worked in the in Africa's first clean development mechanism project, which was the Kuyasa CDM project, implementing solar water heaters on low-cost housing. Now, in that project, I worked as a social researcher and then quickly started consulting to a municipality in a neighboring province as well on a similar project. So I got introduced into household energy specifically. And then after my, my master's, which I wrote my thesis on, on those experiences in these projects, um, I started working at University of Cape Town in the Energy Research Center. And there we had a team on energy poverty and development. So I worked on household energy specifically, looking into paraffin use and um, fewer words, solar water heating, solar home systems, all from a social and developmental um, perspective. And then in 2011, the South African government started procuring utility-scale renewable energy projects through the REAP program, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program. And that program asked bidders to compile socio-economic development plans as part of their bids. And so myself and a few colleagues found, um, found ourselves being asked by industry stakeholders to assist in bid development because they saw that we worked on energy and poverty and they needed to do socio-economic development plans. So they figured we could be of assistance. And we did so um, in workings with a few, few bits which we helped develop and then quickly realized that the way the policy was, was, was seemed to be rolling out if it was to successfully be implemented would not only lead to a lot of opportunities for community development based on those specific criteria, we speak a bit, bit more later, but um, also possibly to challenges because the policy didn't provide much guidance, at least from what our reading of the policy was. So from that moment onwards, we decided to try and support the sector and government and communities and civil society to, to fully embrace the opportunities linked to that program. 
and in that um, in that way, I'm still working <laughs> eight years later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just rewinding a bit, so so you took your masters uh, and you did a PhD, and and can you just briefly explain what what the subjects are and and, and your fields sure. of expertise? Sure. Uh, my PhD, I wrote on the REAP program, and that was about two years or so into the program when I realized that we were really lacking realistic opportunity to find academic support, academic funding um, to support the program and the, the stakeholders involved. And then I had the opportunity to access a scholarship in South Africa. So I resigned from my academic post and used that opportunity with a scholarship to spend three years completely in the field, um, in the field being with government and with industry and civil society. So I I approached it through a transdisciplinary uh, perspective, but then later on scaled it down, so to speak, to action research, and then it was even a bit became a bit more dry in the actual document later on, <laughs> for various reasons. Um, but it is a I brought together institutional logics, institutional work, um, looking into how the policy was created with regards to community benefits, and then how it is unfolding on the ground, looking into various case study projects. So this research that you have done led you into various projects, few of which we're going to discuss today. You have made a report, an IFC report, that maybe you can e- explain the abbreviation uh, and perhaps also bridge it to the Ten Trans project, which okay. is also an abbreviation <laughs> um, that we're also going to discuss today. So can you just give a brief background on on, on this work? At the time of my PhD, I had the opportunity to not only spend time in, in, in project host communities and with, with companies that own projects and are implementing or were constructing at those times um, projects, but also with national government to a certain degree, as well as local government. So I got a lot of different insights from the different stakeholders involved in the program, as well as trying to mobilize with civil society for resources to support communities to to make best sense of the opportunities um, that were arriving with projects. And in in all of those efforts, I tried to support stakeholders which had different capacities to access resources. So I got involved with the industry associations and there eventually we um, we found ourselves setting up working groups and the Solar Association and the, the Wind Industry Association as well. There were um, various funding proposals underway with, with, with NGOs in South Africa. Um, in academia, we tried to bring together students and academic staff working on related topics to build a network to see how can academia support the sector going forward. Um, and also individually, I, I tried to find ways to continue working myself in the on those subjects. So... There's a, yeah, with a grand scheme, I suppose I need to call it, um, in mind, I try to find international institutions that have appetite to really adhere, to to attend to the sector and the sector social performance challenges. So the the social implementation of utility scale renewables in a a more holistic and international way. So my example in my mind often is the ICMM which is the, the council attending to metals and mining, which is based in, in, in the UK. And they have quite a substantial body of staff and provide a lot of guidelines and toolkits and trainings and practice support across the mining sector, also on social aspects. So having that in mind, I, I've tried to sense who in the landscape around renewable energy has appetite to um, constitute a similar capacity. And they started engaging with the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, in the US, as well as with IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency in Abu Dhabi. Those conversations at different times matured. Mm-hmm. And um, with the with IRENA, uh, we got to a point where together with a colleague of mine, we agreed to a contract to basically replicate my PhD, which looked into community benefits of South Africa, but replicate that across sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. So in 2017, we spent a lot of time traveling across sub-Saharan Africa, doing field work in IPPs, renewables, um, independent power producers that either were in construction or operation to understand how are they currently, whether or not they have to, um, or if it's voluntary, how are they currently benefiting communities through skills development programs, 
job creation. Maybe there's interventions that foster gender equality, but also other um, community benefits, or maybe benefit sharing arrangements around ownership even. There was a, a study we did which isn't published yet, but we hope it's, um, it's forthcoming. Um, and with the IFC, that conversation became really interesting as I had joined um, Synergy, which is the consulting firm I work for. I've got, as you mentioned earlier, a position as a, as a consultant, a social performance consulting firm called Synergy Global, but then also with Stellenbosch University. So as I joined Synergy, the IFC um, conversation became interesting. And we agreed to do a study globally with a global scope, looking into what what how, how what are the different ways projects are benefiting communities, um, which is a similar frame to the Arena study, but it's slightly less policy oriented, but but more has a corporate perspective. And that study was now published three months ago, and we launched it in uh, Dakar at the IFC Sustainability Exchange Forum. This, this study is, uh, <laughs> I think now we do have a lot of background on it. And, and just to mention, uh, I believe this is the study where, where you have uh, reviewed a lot of reports, a lot of studies on energy projects. You have made a lot of expert interviews and you've uh, done several case studies across the globe from Morocco to Colombia uh, to to uh, address your specific uh, subject of, of uh, community engagement and and the impacts on, on local communities. Then moving on from, from this study into the 10 trends project, just briefly an explanation of the abbreviation. I think you said it already, but it's uh, tendering sustainable energy transitions. It's, it's been running from 2018 and ending in 2020. So we're sort of in the middle of the project. And uh, I believe today you're going to share a bit of of the findings from from this project and then from your related research of, of previous projects. Yeah, Tendrance is a, a really exciting um, project for me. It is the first academic project that has found funding to attend to social and only social um, to social issues in the in the reprogram. So it is a collaboration between Danish universities and research institutes as well as. South Africans, and when when the Tintrans proposal was brought to me as a as a possibility to join, it was really exciting for me because I constantly do look for either on the academic side or the consulting side opportunities to foster the sector's reflexivity about its own impacts and practices. So Tintrans has a really interesting scope in that regard. We've got. Um, Three work packages. The one looks into the design of the procurement program in South Africa. The other one looks into local content, industrial development. And then the work package I mainly work on looks into community engagement. So those are the relationships companies and projects form with project host communities as well as other stakeholders in the in the landscape that are relevant to the project impacted or affected. That specific work package is a collaboration between the Danish Institute for International Studies, DIES in Copenhagen, as well as UNEP DTU, Stellenbosch University, and the University of Cape Town. I think you touched upon this already, but but the motivation for funding this specific project? It was actually the first call, and possibly even the only call until today, which had specifically written in an option to look into REAP, the South African Procurement Program, mm. as a thematic focus for academic research. And that... I believe this for various reasons. I mean, South Africa has huge renewable energy resources and potential. Our energy landscape is fascinating and very complicated, as in most places, but um, we're sitting with specific opportunities and also challenges. And in that context, the REAP program really constitutes almost a miraculous um, example of how a procurement program can be rolled out successfully, really fast, on budget, on time. And not only that, but also integrate um, two different policy objectives, major ones, on economic development and on energy security. So REAP stands out for those requirements um, internationally, actually. And not only does it require companies to commit to certain economic development commitments, which are usually um, you aim for those to be implemented on a national level, but also it has requirements that 
force companies and projects to interact with local communities. So settlements within a 50-kilometer radius or a district municipal radius around community benefit sharing arrangements. So now at the heart of all of this lies the need to build trusted and reliable and transparent and resilient relationships with project host communities and stakeholders in order to then successfully roll out projects and also distribute benefits, especially with a long-term horizon of the, the 20-year or longer maybe duration of PPAs. Mm. So the Tentrans project, looking into the community engagement part as well, really goes to the heart of what it means to to implement and maintain a place-based investment, in this case, a renewable energy, utility-scale renewable energy project, which is a implementing agent of the energy transition, eh, to, to look into what lies at the heart of making that socially sustainable. I find a discussion of REAP quite interesting because I... Uh, You've already touched upon some of the the aspects of it, but the essential ability to combine fundamental sustainability requirements into this tendering, where you have the social aspects covered, you have concrete requirements for for these social aspects. You obviously have the environmental uh, aspects in in form of the renewable energy uh, deployment. And then you also have the the third leg in the traditional definition of sustainability, which is the the economics and the financing, where uh, things obviously have to to make a profit in order for the companies to to invest. and And when I first saw this uh, this definition, I thought this may be so difficult to fulfill that not many investors may come into it. But then I looked at the numbers and then could see that since 2011, where Reap has run. Uh, I, I'm seeing a number of, of uh, six gigawatts, so that's six thousand megawatts of capacity being introduced, which is uh, quite a lot of capacity of renewable energy being added uh, to the system. So this is not peanuts; this is actually something that has scale. And I'm interested to find out what you actually found or what you've found so far with the, with your research, whether it lives up to to these targets and, and so on and so forth. But but perhaps we can just briefly go through some key concepts uh, because I believe you apply some concepts which are at least foreign to me and perhaps also to our listeners. So can you just explain what social license to operate is in in regard to to your research and and the research you carried out regarding REAP? Yeah, so social license to operate is really key to each of our 62 projects that we currently have feeding into the grid. So we've got a procured capacity around 6,000, I believe, but um, our installed capacity is around 4,300 megawatts or so maybe. And we have around four projects, which I think are 27 projects. They are currently in construction. Mm. So a social license operate basically is a term used a lot in the in the corporate um, sector, comes from the mining sector and other natural resource-based industries. And it describes the the willingness of a, a of society to host a project, uh, an operation or a business in their backyard, in their neighborhood, in their district or in their region. So a social license is in addition to a legal license. It's not something you can get a stamp on of an approval and then you have it. It's something very dynamic and mm. you need to negotiate it almost every day and at night as well. <laughs> so basically what it what it allows you to do is to discuss the the quality of your relationship with stakeholders as it um, relates to business risks. So you can translate it into social risks where you say, okay, we do have, um, we are exposed as an operation. Maybe if we have a, a PV plant, we are exposed to risks that on the extreme end could be, um, could look, could, could come to us in the form of vandalism maybe of our side or strikes or blockages, um, delays if you are still in construction. Those those aspects, uh, those situations are really an indication that your social license is shaky and maybe currently really, really weak. But then also on the other end of the spectrum, you have um, other indications where of, of really trusted, reliable, transparent um, and resilient relationships. And the mining sector specifically is quite mature in, in their social performance practices. So all the practices that... Um, that relate to how a business conducts its interactions with society, whether it is 
the wider society or the immediate local social um, stakeholders. Mm -hmm. um, but it, in the mining sector, you would find companies maybe serving for the, the strengths of their social license. In renewable energy, we, we're not quite there yet. Another key concept before we dive into to your findings uh, is the social performance, which is also a concept that is unfamiliar to me, at least. Yeah. So I, I said earlier, social performance relates to the um, interactions between an operation or a business with society. And in a nutshell, that is what it is. Mm. In in more practical terms, it it looks into the social risks, social impacts and social benefits of an operation. And you, when you look into place-based investments or natural resource-based industries, you You can um, think of activities and issues around human rights, for example, around resettlement, so linked to land acquisition, um, labor standards, working conditions, um, community relations, health and safety for community, um, community benefits, all those um, all those business operations, uh, business activities relate to social performance and are encompass the um, understanding of the, the the professional practices that that are part of the social performance field. Mm. Some proponents of the green transition believes that we are sort of at a war footing. So this is equivalent to uh, the world being at war against, in this case, climate change and pollution. So the overall motivation of having social acceptance issues versus Uh, just putting those wind turbines in people's backyards because they necessarily have to be there in order to have a green transition, which is necessary. I'm not putting judgment on either side, I, I, but I would like you, you, you are also <laughs> welcome not to, but I'm just curious regarding your perspectives on, on, on this argument versus the other one. If I get you right, you're asking to maybe justification of disregarding social sentiments and people's perceptions and, and expectations for what are what does not stand in their backyard um, in terms of infrastructure. And the tension is is real, whether it is on a policy level or internationally, um, as it debated maybe on the UNFCCC level or national policy to which economic sector, especially in the energy um, landscape dominates, whether it's coal or nuclear or renewables, as well as it does translate to the ground where you look into, okay, which companies and which projects um, are more successful in land acquisition and in, in legitimizing their existence locally. And that question around legitimacy is similar to the question of social license. So you can have a, a social license on a project level, but you can also have it collectively across the entire industry. And there's different spheres where you negotiate those. Um, as you as you obviously rightfully point out, we are under tremendous pressure to roll out and deploy renewables or cleaner technologies um, really fast. And there are various models that are being tested out internationally, whether it is where a national government pre-procures or supports um, in the land acquisition process so that um, deployment can go really, really fast. Um, or where it is that um, you try and bring industry to act really fast through a procurement program, a tendering scheme with tight timelines. There are various innovative models currently being explored um, and tested in the world, and they all do have advantages and disadvantages. Mm. I strongly believe, and from what I have seen, that because we are dealing with place-based infrastructure because we have social risks and we are um, exposed to to stoppage to the entire operation at the ultimate um, extreme of of, of, um, of dissatisfaction with a specific operation we can't disregard people's sentiments mm. so the energy transition if it's the way it it, it it needs to take people's expectations on board and actually Um, need to almost be led by social performance practitioners, in my view. Mm. <laughs> Obviously, we do need technical expertise, um, and that needs to go hand in hand. But what we're currently seeing is that social performance is gradually, in my perception at least, moving closer to core business also 
and energy companies, where that has happened already in mining, much more so because they have a much longer legacy of experiences of what it takes and what it means to the profitability of an operation if you don't, um, yeah, if you're socially not acceptable locally. Mm. So in renewables and in energy, I think we are on a very steep learning curve. And in fact, we need to um, rapidly professionalize our understanding as well as much more radically embrace the legacies of our colonial histories, post-apartheid South Africa specifically. What does it take to really address poverty and inequality in a sustainable fashion? Mm. So those questions I don't have answers for, but they are lying at the heart of the ethos of what it is and what it takes to work with people on technology deployment. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much in line with your understanding because I believe uh, relating back to the sustainability definition, you can maybe have the very strong environmental leg, but if you don't have the uh, similarly strong social aspect or leg on your chair, uh, your chair may f fall over, <laughs> proverbially speaking. So let's let's try and set the scene for uh, the more concrete aspects of what you're dealing with in the Tentrans project and then what you've been dealing with in the earlier research. So how does company and community relations look in practice? So there's lots of different labels or terms used in social performance as the professional field matures and also as it gets translated into the context of other industries and, and countries or continents. Company community relations and development is one term used a lot in Australia. If we can differentiate between company community relations or community engagement and community benefits or community development as well. It all is concerned with the relationships and um, benefits developmental of developmental nature within the project host community or the nearby environment. And there, when we think of a renewable energy project at its early stages of development, land is being um, seeked and early conversations usually taking place with land owners or government representatives um, active in the area, maybe community leaders, representation of, of traditional leadership structures, if it isn't in a context where, where such is, is relevant, which really speak to the early needs around um, building relationships to, in order to even have a, a project that you can develop further. So there already in renewables, we see that a lot of companies are not necessarily constituted to have skilled capacity on board. So teams often are operating on a shoestring, so from a human capacity and also their financial resources, even time sometimes. So you might find a one person developing a product over a few years alone almost. So the, the professional capacity available to those teams in, in the development phases is really slim on, on community relations. And we do see a lot of legacy issues coming with that at later stages of project um, of the project cycle. So when a product gets through the, the various permitting and approval stages and then reaches financial close and goes for construction, the real questions do arise quite quickly around, okay, who will be employed on site? Um, what skills and what training possibilities are available? Um, who will be receiving contracts in order to um, bring materials and service side and all the needs and activities around the operation and construction? So those questions all require really good communication with local stakeholders, um, as well as ideally a deliberate plan so under social performance, you would expect um, a social performance team to have established a community or a, a stakeholder map, done an analysis process and have a stakeholder engagement plan in place, a local procurement plan as well to see, okay, what skills and businesses are available locally versus what services do I need to procure from elsewhere, either from bigger commercial um, centers in, the, in proximity to site or maybe even from other countries or other continents even. So all those questions really lie at the heart to how how happy basically um, people living around site are with their construction underway. So those are some of the critical um, questions around construction time. And then as you as you start operating, there are still some jobs available doing maintenance or, or maybe if it is around um, taking care of land and, and, and the office buildings, maybe fencing, maybe insecurity. 
So there are some questions still around um, employment opportunities, but more so um, around community benefits. And that is specifically important for projects operating in context of high rates of poverty and inequality. And we also do see that not only being relevant to projects in Africa so, or maybe South America or other places where, where we have high rates of unemployment and poverty, but also actually in Europe and in Canada and in Australia, where you do find economically distressed areas hosting big, um, expensive projects and what residents associate with such infrastructure is economic opportunity, which mm. is how they how their the willingness to host those projects is is usually negotiated. So those questions are important for projects across the world. This type of of uh, benefit sharing measures, it, it sounds quite comprehensive for a company to engage in to to provide an overview of, of this. Is, is there is there a common practice for this in in the projects that you have uh, looked at? Yeah. So. It, There are different drivers for benefit sharing. And one which I stress the most right now is, is um, demands and expectations from people living in the area, which receives as a project. But it can also be driven by policy, like in South Africa, where government stipulates that private sector who's participating in, in the generation of electricity needs to adhere to certain rules. So we can speak about those a bit more. But then there's also expectations coming from investors, for example. And other drivers might relate to the reputation a company wants to wants to really work mm. on. So what um, in South Africa is is really key is um, that the policy just stipulates that companies and projects need to employ a certain amount of people from the local community, so either from within 50 kilometer radius around site or the district municipality. And that depends which procurement round a project is approved under. Um, three other criteria are important with regard to local communities. The second one is um, community ownership. So a certain percentage of the total project shareholding needs to be allocated to a local entity, a legal entity mm -hmm. that represents community residing in that beneficiary radius. And that is a minimum of 2.5%. So in some projects, it goes up to, to even 40%. Mm. Um, others, I think an average is around 10 or 11%, maybe if I'm not mistaken. Um, mainly in South Africa, The market responded to this requirement by establishing community trusts, which are a, a, quite a popular vehicle or common vehicle in South Africa for community development. We know it a lot from mining, but also from the agriculture sectors, um, where you have a board of trustees making decisions on behalf of the, the income that trust receives. Mm. Then the third and fourth requirement linking um, projects with communities. The third one is socioeconomic development. So projects need to spend a minimum of one and a maximum of 1.5% of their total project revenue on a quarterly basis on socioeconomic development measures. So that could be health, education, um, arts and culture, sport, activities that fall under social welfare generally. And then the fourth requirement is enterprise development, which is voluntary. So companies don't have to adhere to it, but if they do commit, they need to follow through. And that is a maximum of 0.7% of their project Revenue that needs to be spent on on any measures, intervention that support small and medium-sized businesses um, to participate in the economy. And the focus across all um, our entire economic development scorecard is to support um, previously disadvantaged individuals and groups to participate more actively and successfully in the economy. So it's based on our BEE legislation, our Black Economic Empowerment legislation. Okay. There is a an approach which has been carried out at least uh, some places in Denmark. I know that when you want to establish a uh, project, you approach the opinion makers or the sort of the leaders in the local society, uh, whatever leader that may be, not maybe not in a formal manner, but the local blacksmith or someone with some kind of reputation in the society. And then you try to convince uh, these stakeholders of the benefits of that project and then you invite the broader community but having established a common understanding with the opinion makers to ensure that your project is facilitated by making kind of an alliance with, with these people uh, beforehand. I'm not putting judgment on this approach because that may be the way that, that things are actually 
getting done. Uh, but I'm just curious to hear whether you have experienced similar approaches and seen seen similar uh, methods applied in in the projects that that you have reviewed. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. No, when you sit with a a work focus that brings together government, private sector, and civil society agendas um, with such a place-based focus. So that brings up a whole lot of fascinating questions and dynamics, and inevitably so, and regardless to which country you are in or um, also which, which project or program or policy you're really concerned with. So there might be a short-term informed business rationale to get a project quickly through planning approval and then assume that later on any concerns anyone might have had and couldn't voice would dissipate dissipate and that I can't comment on that I have not been involved in projects like that but I understand that that is the experience in in some projects especially more in Europe maybe in other contexts planning approval is not the big issue is that can be um, can be achieved fairly easily, but the the bigger task around the engagement um, work is really during construction when um, impacts are being experienced by communities, disturbances, environmental impacts during the construction phase, and also in the same time opportunities are being negotiated around employment and skills development programs and benefits and contracts for local local businesses. So um, that already requires you to have a somewhat more medium-term focus in mind, being, okay, we have a planning approval, and then once we go through construction, how will we get through construction? And how will we not only get through construction at some point, but ideally on budget and on time? And that requires you to be quite deliberate about how you build relationships and with whom. And their strategies might be to go with the um, outspoken and and mm. and um, easily accessible elites maybe within a specific setting. But also there, as soon as you map your stakeholders um, appropriately or as soon as you start constructing, you will realize where there might be flaws or blind spots in, in, in those assumptions. And if you do your work informed by um, democratic principles and, and community development experience and social performance experience in other sectors. So whether it is you tap into academic and civil society knowledge around community development or more government-led like democracy and local economic development or really deep corporate experiences around social performance and, and um, um, industrial relations, uh, human, human resources, you will you will inevitably have to develop more longer term strategies for how you build relationships and how you interact with society so that those that you make it as a pro through construction but also then into operation and that during operations you you maintain your legitimacy hmm. relating to this um, you have a an almost poetic quote in in one of your reports which is uh, there are nuggets of wisdom available from each and every person who's working in the sector so perhaps that answers my question but but still I'll, I'll try to, to to ask it so so your research shows that who should be engaged exactly who which are the stakeholders is it essentially everybody uh, touching on the project yeah and there you come to to the practicalities now what does it mean to be um, a renewable energy stakeholder and by that it's not a homogeneous group it's 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 so many different entities that are involved in in the industry and in my very very simplified example just now but coming from development to construction and operation in that in that few years there are a myriad of, of companies and stakeholders involved so who develops might not be the same company who constructs and might not be the same company that owns and then the ownership changes as well. So it really depends on who has got what scope at what point in time and with that sits with what sort of experience and budget and opportunity to think ahead and what are their business strategies. If you develop a product and you know you want to own it throughout the entire PPA duration, you probably put more work into establishing good relationships. Mm. If you know your job is to seek the land and secure a land lease agreement, 
you don't really care as much about like who will get the contracts during the construction site because there isn't really a social license risk to you as a as a private firm. So your strategies differ. And where we are not at in the sector is to have standards and guidelines that really help us to have those conversations more progressively and proactively as well across legal entities and then across stakeholders. So with government and communities as well. So we are still really learning as an industry. Mm. Generally, we can fall back onto principles of practice, which is like, how, what does good community engagement mean? And it means you know your stakeholders, you understand the local context, you analyze who's got what interests and what who is vulnerable and how, and how do I contribute to, to those vulnerabilities and how can I then mitigate those? Um, you look into... How do I best communicate appropriately with the stakeholders I need to communicate with? Is it a website? Are people online? Is that the most appropriate form? And or do I need to find other ways? And usually it is a myriad of different communication channels, ranging from meetings, um, house visits maybe, community meetings, meetings with government, having maybe a community liaison office, so a physical structure within reach of um, of the project host community to come and actually ask questions when those arise, maybe also to drop off CVs if there is a, an employment um, or recruitment drive um, for local contractors to come with issues or maybe with proposals as well. You can use Twitter, you can use Facebook and websites and notice boards and newsletters and, and loudspeaking. In South Africa, we often announce meetings with loudspeaking, with a car and loudspeaker. So there are really, really many different ways. And what is important is to adhere to principles, to be reliable, to follow through, to be transparent. And those practice principles are the same across industries, across various, um, various fields of development. And it doesn't really matter if you're government or an NGO or a company. You can learn from one another and there's uh, vast resources to also tap into. Mm. You, you just mentioned transparency and, and th this relates to a question, I guess, which applies to all kinds of projects, uh, regardless of energy or not, and all kinds of geographies. But when you do have community engagement and you do have new projects potentially being deployed in, in your neighborhood, Some people may have uh, smaller or larger interests and may thus be more prone to uh, corruption, for instance, or just being intransparent in the decision-making process uh, to to have certain benefits, perhaps. Uh, I guess you, you, you've been answering that question already <laughs> because you said transparency is important, but... but Do you have uh, approaches to, to dealing with the corruption or lack of transparency or uh, something on, on that scale uh, or that end of the scale in, in such pro projects? Yeah, I suppose my experience is what I really said was is when I started the arena research and tried to find out where across sub-Saharan Africa do we have projects in construction or operation and realized we don't have a database. There isn't a map. There isn't a website where I can look. There's maybe one, but I need to pay a lot of pounds to get access to, and we didn't have that in our project budget. So in terms of public information to where operations are placed, that is really difficult. And I'm sure we are making progress on that and certainly have so in South Africa, where we, for example, I mean, our, yeah, our, our, our really unique effort there is the energy block, which is run by someone called uh, Stephen Forder, and he made it his task with no funding. It was literally his commitment to public awareness and information, he made it his task to map all the REAP programs in the country and display them on a website. And he's building up now a really powerful um, online resource, which hopefully will also allow us to, to add further data to it. So it's, these are really um, unique and niche civil society driven initiatives to raise awareness and foster transparency. The REAP program also in its early days, and I mean, still now it applies, but it has changed slightly in the discourse. But the policy, um, as it was um, documented or, or manifested through the procurement documents, those were confidential. And they still are confidential. So mm. you have to be a registered bidder, bidder, which means you need to pay a bidding fee for that as well in order to access those documents. So in the beginning of our research, 2011-2012, um, we managed to put in a public access to information request to get access to those documents legally and then be allowed to publish on those as well. So those were really early days, obviously, in the industry. And the lawyers who have drafted those procurement documents tried to safeguard for all sorts of abuse and misuse. And unfortunately, um, 
compromised transparency tremendously with that. So it did lead to our public debate about REAP and renewables being quite delayed, actually, and um, maybe also contributed to some of the um, tension that we are now feeling where the public debate is, is, is very, very tension-filled and um, brings together a whole lot of vested interests from various sectors, including some that are really, really challenging, um, some economic stakeholders that are very, very challenging to our um, energy landscape, and others which are asking for much more progressive targets to be included into, into REAP or a similar program, which should not only include um, private sector stakeholders primarily and, and a small, have a small margin um, for community ownership, but some stakeholders are asking for publicly owned renewables projects mm. completely and socially owned, whether that is labor and union owning those projects or maybe community owned land being utilized in the land acquisition process or just having more innovative models that allow um, the reallocation of wealth and the alleviation of poverty and inequality to be fast-tracked through renewables differently and better and, and more sustainably. So mm. the biggest economic um, hinges there or leverages are land ownership and then asset ownership. So those are the ones we are negotiating and we, we need to become more smart in developing models around that. And those will impact corporate practices, but also policy. You may also risk that uh, poor, less uh, literate or less informed people may be thrown under the bus and, and maybe get projects that they maybe didn't want? Or what is your perspective on that? It's a double-edged sword, I guess. I think the strongest res resistance comes in association with cultural heritage and um, sense of place. And those questions really relate to land acquisition and siting of, of operations. Um, which require tremendous sensitivity, ideally also professional skills or deliberation strategy in order to know how to mitigate for impacts. Mm. Um, and there we have experienced across the continent a few um, difficult and very challenging examples and experiences in the sector, as which have costed companies but also communities um, a lot of time and money as well. So some of the projects, or the one which is prominent, the Kinyangob in, in Kenya, which failed, There are some, some analysis showing how much staff time from the companies was gone at a loss because they tried to save the project and how much investment was, was gone, um, wasted basically because the project didn't eventually move ahead. But also the time of the community and, and, and households and individuals protesting and taking up those conversations with private sector and with their own government, the time they spend and the money they spend and resources to have those conversations and fight for their rights are really... Um, Significant, especially in a context with poverty and inequality. So there's even more of a need to safeguard and be really careful and invest upfront a lot on the corporate and government side in order mm. to safeguard um, the already very marginalized and, and economically distressed communities from having to invest their limited resources into fighting for their rights. So unfortunately, globally, that is those are conversations <laughs> we, 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 we're sitting with in all sectors now in all aspects of society and mm. activities. Um, There are, on the other end of the spectrum, also some, some really interesting examples, I think. Like in Rwanda, for example, the utility-scale solar plant, there's one. It's a small PV plant, 8.5 megawatt, and it's based on land that is owned by an orphanage. So it's a youth village, and the lease income contributes to the operating costs of that NGO, of the youth village. So that's an interesting example, I think. Also in Namibia, there are some of the... Um, um, utility-scale renewables plants and the one, the Umbepo um, wind farm in Luderitz, for example, is based on land that is owned by the town council, so by the local government. And in return, there's an income into the town council's budget. And that is, was part and is part of their strategy to diversify their income sources as mining is phasing out in that area and renewables is moving in. So those are innovative models, I think, of shared ownership and maybe even co-creating in terms of development, which we need to look out for and really learn from and see, okay, what enabled companies to be innovative? Who were those stakeholders? How can we empower other stakeholders to more actively also participate? And interesting work there also on a procurement side, for example, is done by Shalanda Baker at Boston um, in the US. She's at North Northeastern University. She's looking into... Um, possibilities to integrate indigenous people's rights into procurement design. Also, REN21, the think tank, has published a report on um, empowering, repowering communities. So also making suggestions for tender design and procurement design 
to incorporate more economic development objectives. Um, so I think we are, we, we, we will be seeing much more innovation mm. on that scene, on mm. policy and on corporate practice going forward. To, to summarize, and, and now you may supplement and correct me if, if I'm wrong. So what's in it for the companies is that if you engage in a good fashion with communities, your projects may receive an acceptance which will facilitate the process so make make the project faster to deploy and also maintain it throughout it, its lifetime uh, with acceptance from the local people. And the community may benefit in, in many different ways, uh, ranging from economic uh, local benefits and that education and empowerment is increased uh, in local communities. And then I think just to summarize on, on the government and institutional side, they, as I see it, may benefit in the way that uh, projects they, they have in their policies may be facilitated uh, more expedient and more efficiently by having this engagement with the community that ensures the acceptance of, of whatever whatever projects that the government or state may have. Yeah, I would stress the uh, importance of the design um, of projects and that around siting, but also design in terms of the project implementation and during construction. So not only that projects are accepted if you engage effectively, but they are accepted on the basis of being as just as possible, hopefully. Mm. They are accepted because they do, do deliver on their promises and they do include what is possible to be sourced locally and whoever is possibly being um, able to be employed or, or trained and skilled. So those are real um, material changes possibly in some of the product designs that need to take place in order to, to reach acceptance. Mm. That realize at the heart of why should you engage and why should you bother to spend all that time and money on effectively engaging It allows you to understand what is locally acceptable, what is locally needed, what are the assets available, and how to build up on that to then actually effectively contribute to local economic development. And that will guarantee you, or that will allow you to be a legitimate development actor and, and economic player in the region. Yeah. So relating to that, I suppose timing is a relevant issue as well, and, and especially to address conflicts that necessarily arise throughout uh, The, the time frame of such projects. So what what have you found so far in, in when to engage and, and when to start the process in, in projects? Yeah. And there we're opening up a con the conversation to even more complexity because depending on who is the developer, right? classically in South Africa, as we've experienced it mainly is private sector companies are developing projects. But you also do have projects which are developed by government, mm. like in Ethiopia or um, in Benin currently or in Kenya, where government is the developer of projects. So the responsibility and the requirements to, to engage really lie and rest with them and their teams. But you also do have projects that are developed by communities themselves, like the Hepburn Wind Farm in Australia, for example, is 100% community-owned. And um, even though the initial sort of impetus for looking into wind power was given by a private sector-driven idea to develop a project, the community took it on on themselves to develop the ultimate project now on the ground. So depending on who you are, your engagement um, practices might be by default and come very natural because you are a community cooperative or community group. And by default, you speak to your neighbors because this is just the way you build social capital and build um momentum around your idea as a group, or maybe even if it starts with an individual and then you gather more people around you. Or if it's a private sector company that comes from the area, it's one idea, or it comes from the nearby capital, or maybe if it comes from overseas. So it, yeah, it depends who, who's got what stakes in, in, in the product development phases mm. at what point in time. But generally saying um, the, the, the rule is to engage as early as possible and as well thought through and deliberate as possible. and really be inclusive, but also very innovative. And and I say deliberate, but I also want to stress to be, um, yeah, just heartfelt and, and respectful and honest in the way you do relate to people. And that can be done in some cases by by um, people with the right skills and, and aptitude who might not be trained in social science or, or as, as social performance practitioners or If it's in a community setting, there might not be the ones that are elected on the community engagement or whatever those roles might be called. But 
more often than not, it is good to have someone professional mm. on board who has um, some training and, and, and thinking through how to build relationships and what does it take to really um, bring the right resources on board and put structures and processes in place to allow people to, to voice their opinion and participate meaningfully. I'm, I'm curious whether you have uh, encountered any surprises in, in your research. I, I wouldn't call it a surprise. And I think maybe I don't have a surprise as such, which I could share. But what motivates and inspires me is engaging with the people who do do the work of social performance practitioners and, and who do do the relating work, um, who are experienced to be incredibly strong and innovative and ambitious and visionary people who, if they are employed by companies, embody the, the attempt and the constant experimentation that is required to bridge the corporate paradigm with the civil society experience of living, if it is in a, in a, in a context that is structurally violent, which is marginalized, which is dominated by poverty and inequality, and to, to facilitate those conversations to be um, progressive and transformative, That really is what what drives me to do the work I do. Mm. Um, I did expect that, I suppose. So it's not a surprise. I I'm just really grateful for having the opportunity and chance to work with so many incredible people. I believe uh, there is perhaps a native word for that in Danish. It's ilshel, which means uh, soul on fire. So people whose soul is on fire is the people that very often this driving uh, local transition and, and development uh, very often one-man armies doing a lot of work for various projects so wow that is a beautiful term yeah in south africa those are one-woman armies All right. um the people usually employed are female mm. so it's a a network of women very few men are amongst those and also internationally i see more women doing this kind of work doesn't mean that I'm saying women should be doing this work, but it is part of our how things work globally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and also it, it speaks to maybe some of the quality. Uh, no, let's stop that. I don't know. This is going to get comp complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Before we finish off, I'm curious to to discuss a bit on what's ahead for uh, for the Ten Trans project and for for your research in in general, perhaps. Maybe starting out with a bit contentious subject is, uh, I suppose, those megawatts that's been delivered by the the REAP program may alleviate some of the pains that South Africa is currently suffering. Uh, perhaps listeners have heard about the the crisis in the ESCOM energy company that results in frequent blackouts and an uh, unstable financial situation uh, for the company and perhaps also for South Africa as a whole. And without putting your hands in the wasp's nest of, of politics, uh, I would be curious to hear if, if there is any bridging between uh, between the, the projects that you're dealing with and, and the general condition of the country. I suppose it falls in a local context. Um, that is our context and our reality. And as a country, we are looking at a really interesting time. I believe we we need to overcome a lot of challenges and a lot needs to change very significantly and very fast. And most importantly, as that probably most imminent, we require ESCOM to... to Yeah, to regain its sustainability somehow economically as a, as, a, as an entity and um, to be able to provide electricity and energy services as we require for economic development. And a lot of the, the positive ripple and spin-offs we, we expect to come from that will be helpful. How that will be achieved, um, we will have to see. Mm. Um, the work we do in Tentrans in the specific work package on community engagement We engage with um, three conversations specifically. The one is with national government, where we have a unit called the IPP office. That unit is um, responsible for the procurement program, the management, the governance thereof. And we are speaking with the economic development team that is in charge of the, or looks at the economic development criteria of the program. And there we are in dialogue around how to monitor community engagement practices in the sector and the, the level of 
and community relations. So that is one conversation which links to, yeah, which is operationalized through some research instruments around interviews um, and we're having a feedback loop to also advise and provide recommendations to the unit. And that is part of my research always that it's not only, I don't extract data for the sake of publishing academically, I extract data in agreement and in, in co-creation ideally with those who, who hold that data in order to then share it widely to improve reflexivity across the system. So yeah, and that national government is one conversation partner. The second one is provincial government, and they're in the Eastern Cape. We have a very visionary team um, that has put together a forum that meets quarterly and brings together local government stakeholders and renewable energy projects and allows them to communicate on an even footing about where the relationships with communities are at and what are the community investment plans currently underway and, and being designed. So that relates to the socio-economic development, enterprise development requirements, which each of the project has to adhere to. And it really allows local government and their development planning and IPPs and their development planning to hopefully find common ground or at least coordinate of who's doing what and investing where. So that is a really innovative niche um, dialogue we are observing and we're having research instruments around with surveys there to see how are the members of that forum um, benefiting and what what could be done to further improve the, the forum. Our third line of inquiry is um, looking at the work and experience of, of the work of ED managers specifically. So we are interviewing and accompanying and observing the work of economic development managers and their teams in their relationship work in communities and also looking into the practices they are applying to engage as it um, allows them to plan for the community investment. So we hosted a workshop in April which provided some training on facilitation skills for community engagement and we brainstormed some of the critical questions people are sitting with maybe. The one which came up was, should we have a community liaison office or not? Is it worth the money or not? Does it, what are the pros and cons? So those really practical questions, but then also more reflective work in terms of who am I? What brings me to this position in the company? What are the enabling structures I'm experiencing? What is maybe challenging? What are the blind spots um, I'm sitting with in terms of my practice development? And what what could I do and what do I need? Um, and what can I ask for to further support me in my professional development? And then us as a sector, um, more generally, what how can we further professionalize um, and develop and mature the, the professional practice of relating really well and really honestly and meaningfully with communities to ideally develop in the future really sustainable and 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 yeah fully supported projects which we do have we have a lot of support in our projects i need to say that generally um, but we are struggling with as we're struggling with nationally with the legitimacy of renewable energy more more collectively so questions from the project level do also um spill over or or, or reach upwards onto the, the, the industry level and policy level. So those are the three lines of inquiry and we are in the process of data collection and really look forward to sharing results academically more widely. Um, next year we are taking part in conferences, also an industry conference coming up in November, uh, October. Um, yeah, that is the Tentrans project for the next couple of months. Before we finish, um, I would be curious to hear if you have some kind of recommendation for our listeners for an interesting uh, piece of uh, literature or reference or whatever you may offer to them as a parting gift. Yes, I think it's, yeah, what I would like to suggest, maybe because I like it the best, is another podcast series. <laughs> It's a very short um, series there. I think it's only five or six episodes. And it was hosted by Diana Kemp, who's a researcher in Australia. And she interviewed five or six experts, scholars and practitioners from the social performance um, field um, around the different practices they are employing in operations and how they reflect on those and what, where, they, where they see trends in social performance. And that podcast series... Um, I will provide you with a link. Excellent. I think it's a really nice sure. resource for people who start off thinking about social issues around 
natural resource-based or place-based investments or who, who land in, in companies as being employed as, as such practitioners or even people in government who aim to understand a bit better like how are businesses constituted or should be constituted around some of the social questions. Thanks so much. That That's a, a very relevant uh, place to maybe, I don't know, start out before listening to this one or uh, continuing after listening to this one. We Listeners may decide. I may also add, uh, I believe there is a South African band called Die Antwort, which is uh, a piece of culture that has reached at least at least uh, Northern Europe. So in case you you want something entirely different, they may be worth checking out. Um, and with that, I will say thank you so much, Holly. It's been a pleasure. And then we we took it a, a bit longer than anticipated, but we covered a lot of interesting ground and uh, I'll provide resources for uh, our listeners to, to your report uh, so they can find that in the show notes. And um, yeah, with that, I'll just say thanks so much. Thank you very much. It was fun. We hope today's episode gave some food for thought. In fact, why don't you chew a bit on those findings while I finish my PhD thesis? We will be back with a strong catalogue in 2020. And meanwhile, don't forget to spread the word about the podcast if you like it. And as always, comments are welcome. You'll find contact info in the show notes. And with that, Energy Policy Cast may be the first to wish you a happy new year. We look forward to give you more recent research within energy policy in 2020.